Good morning, Bel Air. Well, as care, uh, as Kendall shared, it has been an amazing ten weeks, and uh, I, in some ways, I feel like it's been just a, a blink of an eye. These ten weeks that I've been with you, in some ways, I can't remember life before Bel Air. In some ways, though, I've got some friends from Calvary right here. I, I see, you and you're like, "Hello, don't forget us." Uh, it's been an amazing journey that we've walked together. And for those of you who have been with us on these 10 weeks, we've been taking a look at one passage of Scripture. It's found in the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 24, verses 13 through 35. And in that, in the chronology of Jesus' life, it's after his death, burial, and resurrection. And his disciples who had given their heart to him, their, their, their hope to him, their, their life to him, some of them had followed him for Upwards of three years, they thought that he was going to be their salvation, their peace, their joy. They thought he was going to be the one who would defeat, ultimately, God's enemies. And he had just died. He was buried. And yet there was this rumor that perhaps some had seen him. And so these, these disciples were running. They had left where Jesus was, and they were going the wrong direction. They were headed towards a town called Emmaus. And as we've been reading this, this Emmaus journey, this road to Emmaus from Luke 24, every single week we've taken a look at it in different translations. Each week somebody's actually read to you a different translation of this same passage that then reminds us of how Jesus reveals himself to these disciples. So rather than us read to you, actually I'd like for all of us to read to one another. So if you are able, would you stand And on the screen will be Luke chapter 24, and if you're unable to stand with the posture of your heart, be one of attentiveness and openness. And I'm going to step down and join you as we turn to God's Word. It's amazing. Scripture says that even though heaven and earth will pass away, God's Word will always remain. So would you hear these words from your lips into your ears as we read God's Word from Luke 24? Let's read together. That same day, Sunday, two of Jesus' followers were walking to the village of Emmaus, seven miles out of Jerusalem. As they walked along, they were talking of Jesus' death, when suddenly Jesus himself came along and joined them and began walking beside them. But they didn't recognize him, for God kept them from it. You seem to be in a deep discussion about something, he said. What are you so concerned about? They stopped short, sadness written across their faces, and one of them, Cleopas, replied, You must be the only person in Jerusalem who hasn't heard about the terrible things that happened there last week. What things, Jesus asked? The things that happened to Jesus, the man from Nazareth, they said. He was a prophet, did incredible miracles, and was a mighty teacher highly regarded by both God and man. But the chief priests and our religious leaders arrested him and handed him over to the Roman government to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. We had thought he was the glorious Messiah and that he had come to rescue Israel. And now, beside all this, which happened three days ago, some women from our group of his followers were at his tomb early this morning and came back with an amazing report. His body was missing and that they had seen some angels there 
who told them Jesus is alive. Some of our men ran out to sea, and sure enough, Jesus' body was gone, just as the woman had said. And Jesus said to them, You are such foolish, foolish people. You find it so hard to believe all that the prophets wrote in the scriptures. Wasn't it clearly predicted by the prophets that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering his time of glory? Then Jesus quoted them passage after passage from the writings of the prophets, beginning with the book of Genesis and going right on through the scriptures, explaining what the passages meant and what they said about himself. By this time, they were nearing Emmaus and the end of their journey. Jesus would have gone on, but they begged him to stay the night with them as it was getting late. So we went home with them. As they sat down to eat, he asked God's blessing on the food and then took a small loaf of bread and broke it and was passing it over to them. And suddenly, it was as though their eyes were opened. They recognized him. And at that moment, he disappeared. They began telling each other that their hearts had felt strangely warm as he talked with them and explained the scriptures during the walk down the road. Within the hour, they were on their way back to Jerusalem, where the eleven disciples and the other followers of Jesus greeted them with these words, The Lord has really risen. He appeared to Peter. And the two from Emmaus told their story, as they were walking along the road and how they had recognized him as he was breaking the bread. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? God, may as we come to your word, may your spirit remind us that this story, this journey, is our story, is our journey. Jesus, meet us right now on our road. Illuminate our hearts to see you. May we leave here today changed, hearts burning, following you wherever you will take us. Jesus, it's in your mighty and matchless name we pray. Amen. Would you grab a seat? You know, as we've been wrapping up this 10-week series, it's been... Very eye-opening even for me as we've come to this same text of Scripture week after week after week after week after week. And I find it so fascinating that these two disciples, one of them is named, one of them is anonymous. We don't know the name of the other disciple, but they're headed the wrong direction. They're on the wrong path. And so much in life we talk about, you know, you've got to find the right path, you've got to live the right path, you've got to be on the right road, you've got to be headed the right direction. But these people, these two disciples, were literally headed the wrong way. They weren't going to church, they weren't reading their Bible, they weren't praying, they weren't signing up for a mission trip, they weren't bringing cans to a food drive, they were literally headed the wrong direction. And Jesus met them on their journey. And that gives me such great hope that no matter what direction I'm headed in life, no matter what direction you are headed in life, even if you feel like decisions you made last night, you are headed the wrong direction. Maybe some of you perhaps are listening to this, you know, three months from the moment I'm speaking this online, you feel like your life is headed the wrong direction. Jesus says, that's exactly where I'm going to meet you. And he meets these 
these two disciples, and at first they can't recognize them. They, they, don't, they don't see and they don't understand. They're, they're so filled with grief. They're so filled with disappointment. The things that they had hoped for, the things that they were expecting didn't happen. And so often in our life, we, we hope for things. We dream for things. We long for things. And reality, in many ways, doesn't lead up to our expectations, and we have disappointment. In the midst of that, Jesus meets us exactly where we are. And as Jesus begins to share with them, I find it so fascinating that he doesn't give them, he doesn't give them truth. He doesn't give them a philosophy. He doesn't give them three points on how to live. He doesn't say, okay, if you just do this or, or, or if you just kind of master this thing, then things will be all right. Then you'll have peace. Then you will have joy. Then you'll have significance. He doesn't do that. In fact, he does what every other founder of every major world religion, he does the complete opposite of what they have done because every founder of every major world religion says, I have found the way to truth. And this is how you get there. And every founder of every major world religion or even you know, smaller, like minor religions or even teachers or leaders or, you know, they point to a truth or a philosophy or an ideal or a way of life that is outside of themselves. And they say, this is how you get there. And Jesus doesn't do that. You see, Jesus is unlike any other person who has walked this earth because Jesus is very, very different. He doesn't point to a truth. He doesn't give them three points. He doesn't give them like this, if you do this, then you will have joy. If you, if you just, you know, avoid this, then you'll have peace. We read it together. We've discovered this over the last 10 weeks. We could discover this the rest of our lives. Jesus, he simply points to himself. He didn't say, I know the way. He didn't say, I know the truth. He didn't say, I know the life, and I'll show you how to get there. He said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life, Jesus said. And these last 10 weeks, if you're just joining us, you can go back online, listen, even the podcast. But what we've done is we've taken a look in the most unlikely place of all in the Hebrew scriptures in the Old Testament, stories of creation, of Adam, of Abraham, of Joseph, of Job and Esther and David and Jonah. And we've looked at all these characters from the Old Testament, so much more, King David. We've looked at all these stories, these historical realities, these people that actually existed, the lives that they lived. And Jesus says all those things, how they lived, the, the longings that you saw, the, the peace that they give, the, the forgiveness that you saw, the, the hope that they, they showed to you, all of that, Jesus says, points to me. No matter what you are longing for in life, no matter what is disappointed you in life, Jesus is going to meet you on your journey. He's going to meet you here this morning. If you open up your heart to him, he says, here I am. And he doesn't point to something outside of himself. He points to himself. And in each of these stories, as we've taken a look at all these different aspects of how the Old Testament points to Jesus, you know, in many ways, it reminds me of how for example, in the state of California, there's, a, there's signs all over the state of California that say Los Angeles. Do you know this? You know, you can go up to Tulare, you can go up to Barstow, you can go up to San Francisco, you can go to San Diego, you can be all over the United, uh, not the United States, but all over California, and there's signs that say Los Angeles. You've seen it, you've driven, you've, you've been on vacation. You can be in these places. It could be a huge city, it could be a small little town, you could be in between towns, you could be on the freeway, you could be on the 395. You could be on the 118. There's these signs that say Los Angeles. Why, 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 do they, why do they do that? 
You know, it'd be incorrect to say that all those different signs all over California that say Los Angeles, it would be incorrect to say that when you stand there and you look at that sign, you look at those two words, Los Angeles, it would be correct to say that those words on that sign don't fully reflect, don't fully encompass, don't fully hold the fullness of Los Angeles. Yet there are signs all over California that say Los Angeles. Some say Los Angeles, 310 miles. Some say Los Angeles, 25 miles. Some say Los Angeles, 75 miles. No matter where you are in California, sometimes you'll be on the freeway, you'll be getting on the freeway, you'll be getting off, there'll be an overpass, and you'll see the word Los Angeles, and it would be incorrect to say that that just that word, that sign, is the fullness of Los Angeles. But what it does, those signs all over California, over this great state, no matter where you are, no matter what direction you are headed towards Los Angeles, it points you to this city. And as you get closer and closer to the city, that Los Angeles and the miles ahead get smaller and smaller and smaller. And once you finally get here, first you're in you know, the Los Angeles county limits. But the fullness of Los Angeles isn't even experienced there. In fact, as you get closer and closer into the city of Los Angeles, you could spend one day in L.A., and yet still, even though you're here physically, you're, you're past the signs, you're actually in the city, you're within the city limits, you won't fully experience the fullness of what it means to be in Los Angeles. You could spend a week in Los Angeles and still not get the fullness of what Los Angeles is. You could spend a month, you could spend a year, you could spend a decade. I've spent my entire life in this city. I'm still trying to figure out Los Angeles. There's twists and turns, there's alleys that I've never been on, there's restaurants that I've never been to, there's taco stands I have yet to enjoy. There's houses, there's neighborhoods, there's people, there's life. And yes, those signs all over California point to the city of Los Angeles. And though you can experience, you can begin to experience what Los Angeles is by just living here, you could spend the rest of your life in Los Angeles and still not get the fullness of what Los Angeles is. Now, that is just a microcosm of the signs that are found all throughout the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, much bigger than the state of California. They're historical. They're real. You know, those signs all over California, they're not, they're not metaphors. They're not illusions. They're not holograms. Those are actual signs. You can go up. You can touch them. Try it. On your next drive, you're like, pull it, pull it over, you know, pull the car over, put your hands, it's real, it actually exists. So it's not like they don't exist, it's not like they're metaphors, those physical actual signs point to Los Angeles. In the same way, Jesus is saying that every page, every word, every story, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Esther, Jonah, Ruth, all these actual people, actual historical real stories, they're not metaphors, they're not illusions, they're not holograms. These are actual living people that breathed and cried and laughed just like you do. And every single one of these historically is a sign that points to Jesus. In the same way that you can live in Los Angeles your entire life and not get the fullness of what Los Angeles is, you could spend the rest of your life pursuing a relationship with Jesus and just begin to to scratch the surface of how deep and how rich and how marvelous and how wonderful and how beautiful and how true Jesus is. There's an illustration I, I, I heard a couple years ago, and, and I'm going to adjust a little bit, but you, you think about how, how gigantic Jesus is. Well, maybe you're not coming in here thinking about how gigantic Jesus is. Maybe you just think, oh, yeah, he's a, he's a great guy. He's a teacher. You know, he's, you know I, okay, I believe he's the Son of God. I believe those things. But there was this illustration I heard that's just phenomenal. 
When you think about the distance from here to the moon, and if you were to compress that distance all the way down to a single page in a book, and then if you were to take the distance from here to the next star, the closest star, it actually would be in a book that would sit on a bookshelf that would have to be 70 feet wide, about from here to the corner of that room. And then if you were to take the diameter of just the galaxy in which we are in, you would have to have a bookshelf that would span from here all the way to Las Vegas. And when you think about that distance from here in the diameter of the galaxy, and the galaxy is just a speck of dust within our universe, how amazing the truth is that Hebrews 1 says that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory who holds the universe together. The universe, Jesus does. By the power of his word. And yet we treat Jesus like ice cream. I treat Jesus like ice cream sometimes. Sometimes I just want a scoop. Sometimes I want two, sometimes I want three, but it's usually when I choose Jesus. You know, it's often think of Jesus as something that we consume. You know, we, we show up to church or maybe we, we read the Bible and we actually choose when we come to Jesus. And sometimes for some of us, and maybe not all of us, but some of us in this room, Jesus is just one of many flavors of which we enjoy. You know, it's 31 flavors of ice cream, 21 choices of frozen yogurt, but sometimes we might have Jesus as just one of many things that we taste. We, we might dabble in other viewpoints, other philosophies, other religions, and Jesus is just one of many. But Jesus, by the power of his word, holds this universe together. You see, Jesus is so much more than just a teacher, so much more than just a leader, so much more than just a founder of a world religion. He is everything. And if in Scripture that there are these signs that point to him, one of the, the, the phrases that I've heard more often than I think anything else I've heard in these first 10 weeks is people have come up to me and said, I, gosh, I never saw that before. Wow, the Abraham Isaac story. I just, I never saw how... The sacrifice actually points to Jesus as the ultimate sacrifice. I just never saw that before. Well, you could spend the rest of your life exploring all of Scripture, finding more of Jesus, the rest of your life, and not get bored. Let's start off the rest of our life with, with, with one more. Should we do that? Just one more, just a few minutes. Why don't you open up your Bibles? I know some of you have those in the pew in front of you, the red pew Bible. It's not the gray hymnal, but the red pew Bible. You can open it up. I want you to go to Isaiah chapter 6. And for some of you that perhaps brought your phone or an iPad, you can pull up an app like the U version. It's a phenomenal app that has, I believe, 925 different translations in 610 languages, just in your phone. It's pretty cool. But we're going to Isaiah 6, and it's right in the middle. If you have your pew Bible, literally go to almost the, the dead center, Isaiah 6. Now, I know many of you know this, but I think it needs to be said, Isaiah lived historically hundreds of years before Jesus was born. Okay, so just get that framework in your mind. Isaiah, who wrote this book from which we are going to read, lived hundreds of years before Jesus was born. I'm going to read this, and I'm going to ask you a question. Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I, Isaiah, saw the Lord sitting on a throne, 
high and lofty, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphs, these are angels, were in attendance above him. Each had six wings. With two they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The pivots on the threshold shook at the voices of those who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me. I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Yet my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphs flew to me, holding a live coal that had been taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. The seraph touched my mouth with it and said, Now that this has touched your lips, your guilt has departed and your sin is blotted out. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. I have a simple question for you. Isaiah, who lived many, many years, hundreds of years before Jesus was born, had this vision. We've sung already two songs this morning that were actually written because of this text. The simple question is this. Who did Isaiah see seated on the throne? Was it God the Father? God the Son? Or God the Spirit? I'm not going to give you the answer. I'm going to send you on a scavenger hunt. In fact, there's actually an answer that's found in Scripture. It's actually found in the Gospel according to John. I'll give you a hint. It's, it's after chapter 10. So after this, or maybe some of you are going there right now, you've got to know, and you're like, don't, don't you dare ask a question and not give an answer. And you pastors do that. They've got to give an answer. I'm not going to give you the answer. Because what I want you to do is I want you to go on a journey. I want you to go on a scavenger hunt to find out who is Isaiah talking about. He has this vision of this king on a throne of which angels are singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is filled with his glory. My question to you is who is he singing? God the Father, God the Son, or God the Spirit? John answers that question. It's in the Gospel according to John. I'm just saying this to show you that you could spend the rest of your life from Genesis to Revelation, your heart stirred, filled with awe that Jesus is way more than you ever thought he was. And so in every single way, as we come to God's word, we find that the written word actually points to the living word, that ways in which we think we can find forgiveness or peace or satisfaction or joy, actually all of that comes and is found only in Jesus. Remember, Jesus doesn't say, there's the truth, there's peace, there's joy, there's satisfaction, there's significance, let's go and get it. He says, come to me. Because I am your peace, I am your righteousness, I am your shepherd, I am your security, I am your all in all. Baylor, I want us to be a church that has our hearts, our minds, our entire focus on Jesus. The writer of Hebrews says, let us fix our heart and mind on Jesus, who's the author and perfecter of our faith. He is the champion that goes before us. Now, in the same way that all of these lives are are like signs historically that point to Jesus, so too are we when we put our faith and our trust in Jesus. In fact, the reason why I'm here today 
the end of the month of June in 2014 is because there was a group of people at the University of Southern California whose heart and mind were wrapped up in this person called Jesus. And there was something about the way that they lived. There was something about how they interacted with one another that, that I was so drawn to. And I found that it wasn't some truth that they had discovered. It wasn't some philosophy that they were mastering. It was simply that they had given their heart to Jesus. And in the same way, their lives were like a sign that pointed me not just to them, but even beyond them to their Savior, their Lord Jesus Christ. And I know some of them are here right now. They go to other churches. They're all over Southern California, and they wanted to be here today to encourage me to, to be uh, a friend to me as they always have been. And this is just a, just a smattering of the group of people that were a sign in my life that pointed me to Jesus. They didn't realize it perhaps at the moment in the way that they lived, the peace that they had, the, the laughter, the joy, the ups and downs that they went through as they invited me into that community. I began to experience the first time Jesus. And I gave my life to him and I prayed that most dangerous prayer. It's a dangerous prayer. Jesus, wherever you want to take me, I'll follow. It's a dangerous prayer. But I'm telling you, the world, your family, your coworkers, your community, your neighborhood, this world needs you to first have your heart and your mind and your eyes fixed on Jesus. And we can find Jesus through the power of God's Spirit through all of Scripture. And as we allow him to transform our life, people will, will see Jesus in us. They will see this peace in us, this joy in us, this security, this satisfaction, a reputation that can't be destroyed in us. And it points beyond us. It points to the one who is our all in all, our everything. You see, these people, Jesus was so much more than, than a flavor of ice cream. He was their everything. And yet they hadn't arrived. I still haven't arrived. None of us will arrive at Jesus truly being our everything until we're face to face with him in the new heavens and new earth. But we long for that day. Let's go on a journey together. No matter where you've been traveling, no matter what direction you feel like you're headed, or even this week you make a decision, you feel like you're headed the wrong way, Jesus is going to meet you exactly where you are. And he says, here I am. Here I am. Will you come to me? Will you follow me? I prayed in the beginning and I said that our story is found in many ways like this story. Well, we've actually created something for you. This is the Aramaic summer devotional. Keenan referenced this in the beginning of the service, but we want you to have this because you will quickly find that in the same way that you've discovered Jesus in, in, in new ways in the Hebrew scriptures, you're going to discover that actually Jesus has been among us in our stories. And we have story after story. This is, these, are, these are your stories of how you have encountered Jesus. Every single one is different, is rich, is, is phenomenal. And my hope and my prayer is that you would take this and that you would, you would read through this. You would say, oh, I never saw that before. In our midst, we have, we have people experiencing and encountering Jesus. In fact, on day one, there's a lady who, who wrote day one. And in one sentence, she did better than I have done, I think, in 10 weeks to summarize the point I wanted to get across. So can I end my sermon with her words? She, she did this much better than me. Yeah, yes, I'm, I'm a reverend. Yes, I'm a doctor. But she nailed it right here. Let me read this to you. And this is day one. And when you take this as you leave, I want you to to immerse yourself in this as we continue to hear how Jesus is meeting us on our journeys. But she says simply this on the bottom, the last paragraph of day one. And she's talking about this journey, 
how being in between, not fully arriving is okay because Jesus is walking with us and we are complete in him. And she says, it doesn't matter what we've achieved or have, we have the ultimate gift in Christ. We have the ultimate gift in Christ. She didn't say we have been given the ultimate gift by Christ. She says we have the ultimate gift in Christ. Jesus is our peace. He is our joy. He is our righteousness. He is our salvation. He is our security. He is our reputation. He is our everything. Let's be a church. Let's be a community that walks that journey together, eyes fixed on Jesus. Would you pray with me? God, as we wrap up these 10 weeks in many ways, it's just one step in a lifelong journey of following you. Jesus, we thank you for meeting us on our journey reminding us that we have perhaps overlooked you in some ways in the past. May we continue to to hunger for your word. May we yearn for your word as we go from Genesis all the way to Revelation. May we see the scarlet thread that is like a beautiful tapestry that no matter how close we get, no matter how far back we look, Jesus, we see you. May we discover you in deeper, richer ways in these days and months and years and decades ahead until you return, whenever that is. But Jesus, would you enable us, would you empower us to be witnesses, ambassadors, signs that point to you? And God, as we, one last time in this series, allow the Bel Air Drama Department to, to open up our heart and our eyes again, May we realize that you have been here all along. Jesus, in your mighty name we pray. Amen. Please welcome our final performer to Club Emmaus. The mockers mocked and scoffed and laughed in derision when I said that I knew you. How can you be so... So ignorant to think that you can know something that doesn't even exist. I'm sorry, but I know you. You've introduced yourself to me in a thousand ways, like a scarlet thread weaving in and around a grand tapestry of stories from the beginning of time. I know you. You revealed your holiness through ten rules written on our hearts and tablets. But instead of obeying, men weighed them down with endless rules and regulations. You came to give us grace and reconciliation, but we rejected you and ran away. But ever since, you've been pursuing, drawing us back to you. I know you. Like like a distant trumpet heralding the triumphant entrance of a king. We heard echoes of 
of a man of sorrows, a good shepherd, a humble servant, so that when you arrived, we wouldn't miss it. So many missed it. But I know you. You you condescended to enter into our flesh, muscle and, and sinew and bone, weighing you down in ways that you had never known. But even after seeing the, the sightless sea and the mute sing and the lame walk, the men who weighed us down with endless rules and regulations killed Abraham's promise in an obscene display of blood and sacrifice until your scarlet thread wove in and around the nails and wood completing the centerpiece of your tapestry. I, I look up and I see your handiwork. I look in and I see your guiding hand. I, I look away and I hear you whisper, you will always take me back. And when I've come to the end of my journey, just the end of my day, you bind my wounds with your scarlet thread and wait like a patient lover for me to finally say, I know you know me. And even if it's in a glass darkly, let me know you.